Hi, this is singer-songwriter Elizabeth Edwards. Welcome to Giving Voice to Recovery, a place we share ideas and experience for the purpose of inspiring you on your recovery journey. I am so glad you've joined me for this series of conversations with my dear friend, Christina Wanzelak. You may know Christina from her book, The Lost Years, her work on TLC's groundbreaking show, Addicted, or her television docuseries, Codependent, which premiered on Lifetime and A&E. Christina is credited with helping thousands of addicts and their families through her work as an international interventionist and now joins me in a series of conversations about life, recovery, and coffee. Welcome to Coffee with Christina. I um I laugh at myself, um, which is a good thing. You know, I was talking to Mark uh, Lundholm about that. I said, you know, when I was new, I could never laugh at myself. It would I, you know, life was serious as a heart attack. Everything was high drama, and the fact that I can laugh my ass off at myself on a regular basis, I think is it is really that makes me feel really good. <laughs> I know. Me a good too. example of that. Um, do you talk to Mark a lot? Um, you know, it's funny. We have these big spurts where we're like, and actually he's going to be joining me on a regular basis as well. Uh, but we're going to call it a moment with Mark because Mark is like a whole lot real fast, which I love. I just adore him. Um, but yeah, he's a lot of fun. I've known, I've known Mark for, and we're talking about for people who are listening, we're talking about the comedian Mark, Mark Lundholm, who was really, I believe the pioneer uh, recovery comic. He was the first guy out there making, making jokes about ourselves. Um, and he's hilarious. I mean, he's just, he's not even making jokes. He's just funny. Um, although he's an incredibly skilled comedian, but I've worked with him. I've met him in 1994, mm. right when I was, and I really credit him for, he's the first person who got me on a stage to sing um, in my recovery because I, I was a musician before I had an alcohol and um, amphetamine problem and cocaine problem. Um, and as a child, I was a musician. And so then I had addiction issues for seven, eight years of, you know, craziness and nothing, nothing good was going on there, especially with music. I thought it was, but it it was just, it all just went Mm. drugs and alcohol. Nothing actually, actually was going on. It was happening in my head. Um, And (laughs) when I got sober, I was afraid to go back to that because there was some child, I, you know, I grew up in a big musical family and I had some um, trauma around uh, being the kid that was singing at international jazz festivals at 15. And there was stuff that went on in my family that was good and bad about that. And so I had just a lot of stuff I had, I had to work through my stuff. So by the time I had, I don't know, seven or eight years of sobriety, I met Mark and he was in the beginning of his career mm-hmm. and I was in the beginning of my career, but I didn't know it. I just wanted to be a little songwriter and hide here. Let me send my songs to Nashville and let somebody else sing them. And um, all I would hear was, um, oh, this is a great song. A really good song. Kind of personal. Great voice. Why aren't you doing it? And so I heard that over and over and again. And, at the, and I was so disappointed because there was no way I was ever going to put myself out there again. And um, I this one kind of, you know, I was going to tell the story today, but anyway, so Mark um, had a manager who called me cause she'd heard a little cassette tape back in the day 
um, of a song I wrote called Power to Change. And she wanted to know if I'd come open one of his shows. And it was up at the Luther Burbank Center in mm -hmm. San Jose. And so I said, yeah, and I didn't know that it was going to be, I think he had like 1500 people there that night and he's hilarious. He was hilarious then and he's hilarious now. So yeah, that was the beginning of my relationship with Mark Lundholm. And so he will be joining me on a similar uh, podcast situation, but we're going to do Mark in condensed smaller doses because mm -hmm. Mark is like drinking an espresso as you Can I say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're more like a luck. latte. You're, you're a latte, and he's an espresso. <laughs> good luck with the uh, moment with Mark. I don't. Nothing's a moment with Mark. Yeah, that's hilarious. We're 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 figuring that out. But so that is, yeah. So I talked to him um, through the years in big spurts, and then sometimes we work together, and we've done. I I think I've performed on stage performances and events over over 60 times in the year in the years that I've known him so yeah oh, that's so great he's so a dear great. friend and I can't wait till we can get back out there so at some point we'll be probably talking about something along those lines so I want to ask you some questions okay yeah so I was thinking is that okay yeah 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 <laughs> I and just so for people listening Christina does not know what I'm going to ask her. So I'm just throwing it at her. And she's yeah. so awesome. She's just going to. I'm ready. She's going to give from the heart because that's how she rolls. That's what I just love about you. Um, so cheers on the coffee. I'm drinking Pete's today. Uh, Pete's is one of my favorites. So yeah. I know. Me too. I love California that. girls. Um, okay. So I was thinking about this. So many families, I know you get this, I get this. So many families don't even know where to start. There are, and it's usually the family in my experience, it's not just the individual person that's struggling with addiction. Where to start to even get the resources, to even figure it out, to even get the help and support. It just feels like there's so many barriers to recovery. Where do you suggest for people who know that there's probably something going on? It's really sometimes even hard to identify. What do you say? What do you suggest to the moms, the dads, the wives, the children, the people who love a person who is definitely demonstrating some type of an addiction that is self-destructive and scaring them and they're concerned for their loved one? Where do people start? I think, uh, you know, there's, okay, so first off, there's a lot, and I realize this is not professional care, but there's a lot of 12-step programs that offer, you know, support, of course, uh, interpersonal support, and there's self-help, so, you know, it's not professional care, but I always, you know, it's such a refuge for families, like parents, to feel or to know that they're not alone. So if nothing else, you know, a program, say, like Al-Anon can be very supportive. There's also Family Anonymous that's also very supportive for families. I think also reaching out to, I have families that have reached out to ministers, to their um, local support system, like therapists, um, interventionists. Like you can Google intervention in your area, or for example, myself, I work, you know, internationally really, but I travel all over the country. I have a partner in Texas. So 
together, you know, we can cover a large area. So, you know, I think it's reaching out to professional care. The other thing is calling treatment centers because treatment centers will have resources as well, like the admissions department. Um, will have recommendations for interventionists or people that might be able to help therapists, doctors, psychiatrists that all specialize. In and where do you refer? Because there's so many different types of treatment centers from free uh, nonprofit organizations that have certain types of, you know, services all the way up to, you know, spending an incredibly hard, amount large amount of money. Of money high-end treatment centers. And I used to have like this mindset. I I just want to talk about this a little bit. Um, Everyone has different financial resources. And I, but I used to think that, oh, well, you know, not everyone's a bazillionaire. Well, until you put, until you're working with somebody who does live in a multi-million dollar house and they're dying inside and their barrier to treatment is the treatment center itself. <laughs> like, I'm not going to go live there. That's why those types of organiz- those types of businesses can really support somebody in a different, on a different, anything that gets in the way from somebody getting the help, including the building that it's in and the services that it provides, that can be a barrier. So it can be on both sides. I have no money. I could never go to treatment or I live in a quadrillion billion dollar house and I'm not going to go stay in a little, you know, that mental thing. The goal is to get them to treatment or get them to the right treatment. How does somebody go about figuring out on that spectrum of all the choices, considering finances, considering government resources and the different things that are available? How does somebody start that where do you send people to go research that for their own their own yeah and you know for what it's worth I agree with that wholeheartedly that that's why there's such a range of treatment I don't think treatment should be a punishment for anyone on any level so if you're used to a particular lifestyle that lifestyle should be matched in treatment as well it shouldn't have to be a punitive process where somebody who has that type of lifestyle is going to say like a project 90 or Salvation Army treatment center. So um, I think you're- And I know lots of people just for the record have had wonderful recoveries and we're very grateful to get into Salvation Army. They have an excellent- For sure. I love Salvation Army and we have a project 90 out here. We have Delancey Street out here, which is an incredible, incredible program. Uh, And they all serve, you know, their population. And so your question is actually, I would say, or it sounds like to me is, you know, how do you find the right treatment center for your population, right? For your either age group, addiction, or, you know. Yeah. And sometimes some of the other barriers and, and, and just to say, this isn't, I don't want this podcast to be this episode to be about treatment centers. Treatment centers are a tool in the toolbox of dealing with it. It's not the only tool. And you said something to me one time that really gave me some clarity. You said, you know, one of the problems with like a 28 day program, which is an insurance, the reason it's 28 days has to do with insurance, not to do with the actual illness. The, the problem with that is a lot of times people have a chronic behavioral health disorder when it's coming. That's what addiction is, chronic behavioral health disorder. And 
you're trying to fix it in an acute care situation in 28 days. There's a lot more that needs to happen. I think people been around who've seen this understand that. So treatment centers per se are a tool in the toolbox. They're not the only thing. That's right. So, but they're a great place to start. One of the places to start. Treatment does what treatment's meant to do. So, and yes, to your point, you know, treating a chronic illness with an acute model of care is not going to be successful in the long run. And that's been proven over and over. Treatment does exactly what it does, which is detox and stabilize and begin to create a roadmap of which somebody needs to travel down to ensure successful recovery. That's it. That's what treatment does. I get called all the time by Good Morning America or whatnot about, you know, a celebrity that's relapsed and been to treatment, you know, 10 times. And I think treatment gets a bad rap in the media and treatment is not meant to teach somebody to learn how to live sober. It's just to detox and stabilize. That's it. That's all you got time for in 28 days, especially if somebody's detoxing from opiates or benzos, which take a tremendously long time. So that's all treatment is for in regards to finding great treatment. So there are flagship treatment centers in the country, like um, the Betty Ford Center, let's say. So somebody could call the Betty Ford Center, talk to their admissions department, knowing full well, let's say that it might not be in their price range. um, But the admissions department will make recommendations of other programs that might fit their financial outline, if that makes sense. So that's always a great thing to do. And people get intimidated to call a place like the Betty Ford Center. um, My experience with Betty Ford Center, just so you know, is they will absolutely facilitate your Mm -hmm. uh, direction. Mm -hmm. They are wonderful. I'm not saying I'm not recommending any one particular treatment center. I don't, I do not do that. What I do exactly what you're saying is reach out to somebody that you're comfortable with, who, you know, would know Mm -hmm. on the professional Mm -hmm. level that may be a counselor as well. The other resource, whoever used the SAMHSA um, directory, I have that Mm -hmm. on my website. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, great. And then also, uh, you know, treatment centers now in this country work with um, all sorts of insurance companies. That's also the truth, Uh, including Obamacare and Covered California, where I am. I don't know if those are the same thing, but anyway, you know, (laughs) treatment centers work with all sorts. I mean, like uh, Kaiser has a Medicare problem. plan, right? And even treatment centers take the Medi-Cal Kaiser. So there are um, really great insurance plans too that cover treatment. And to your point also, there's so many different types of treatment. Mm-hmm. It's actually super cool. Like I worked with a program in Maine that's actually a um, a maple syrup farm. And, and they take like only six residents at a time and the residents work on the farm and have uh, treatment. So it's just this really cool, you know, and, and to be able at the end of the day to have, you know, to jar maple syrup and they sell it at markets. And, yeah, and wow, that's the, cool. yeah, yeah, right. It's like such an inspiration yeah. to the young people. It's for young people too. So, you know, obviously that program isn't right for all people, but that's great. And by the way, that program's about $5,000 a month, which compared to some programs is 
extraordinarily great. So, and then also most important part, I think of treatment is a long-term aftercare plan. So I always advise families, by the way, that you don't spend all the money you have just on residential treatment. It's a mistake and people will tell you otherwise, right? People I, I will say you, yeah. right? Because you gotta save 10 or $12,000 from whatever you have to provide your loved one with aftercare, whether that's a sober living environment and outpatient, or maybe you can only afford a sober living environment and, and say therapy or, or, you know, but you, or just an outpatient program, but you have to save 10 or $12,000 from your whole lot for aftercare. And, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Exactly. <laughs> right? So because if all after- you have is $25,000, you minus 12,000 of that. Yeah, exactly. And, and the money part is a really, um, and, you know, I know people just, just so let's take the money thing and put it in perspective. I know people who have detoxed through a county yes. detox facility, have gone to a 12 step program and have embraced that 12-step program and have stayed sober for years, decades. It totally worked for them. They were totally ready. They had a family that supported them. Their family got into some supportive 12-step programs that helped heal the family. And that worked. And if that worked for everyone, wouldn't that be great? But it doesn't. That, it works for a lot of people. But then you you hear, oh, well, this is my $25,000 big book, which is the book for um, the 12-step groups that are all based on that. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff in between. There's issues of pregnant women. There's the, different, right. there's the different addictions themselves, going to a treatment center that specializes in what your substance is. And then, you know, you mentioned benzos benzos are not a quick detox. In fact, if anyone tries to detox you quickly, my experience has been, I would go somewhere else. I would not. I, I believe in slow tapering with benzos. That's my, I've seen it up close and personal a couple of times. And I'm like, whoa, um, I don't think they have that one figured out. We can talk about that on a, we, I know you and I've talked about that before. Yeah. That's a scary drug. Yeah. You know, also so random, but there's another great program out here to your point that's county funded, but it's incredible. It's all women and they take their license for women and children, yes. uh, pregnant, pregnant women and women and children. And so, yes. and, so and so it, and so it's dollars a month and they also take all county you know payments so there are amazing programs out there you just got to reach out to professionals you can reach out to treatment centers you can visit the site that you have on your on your website people are more than happy to to you know email myself i'm happy to you know throw out some ideas so there's really great help out there and to your point about the 12-step programs i mean what's that saying Right. When somebody's ready to get sober, they'll get sober yeah. anywhere. And when they're not, yeah. nothing. So um, anyway, I, I, uh, and treatment, like, I, you know, I've been working in treatment for 25 years. So I have a lot of respect for what they do, of course. But I also own and operate sober living communities because as an interventionist for the last 25 years, what I started to see about 10 years ago, 15 years ago was where we were failing our clients was in aftercare 
And that was a drum that I beat for a long time. No one was interested in it because it wasn't where the money or the insurance was. Uh, But I really, and I take heart on that, right? Like that's all my heart that how many people I sent to residential treatment for four weeks and uh, just didn't understand the value of long-term care afterwards. So I feel really strongly about that. So you got to spread out the resources, I any resources you have. 100% Christina. And there's a few areas, um, residential uh, support after treatment. A lot of times the game, the game changer for somebody is where they go after, because if you send somebody right back into the environment that they became ill in, and it's not because it's a bad environment because it's your fault or anything like that. Like say you're the parent or the wife or the spouse or whatever. It's not because it's, that's the environment that they are going to be triggered in very likely. So going to residential, a place where everyone's committed to their sobriety and held accountable does a lot of things. And I've got crazy hair today. That's what we were laughing about when uh, we first came (laughs) on today. As I said, I'm laughing at myself because my hair is crazy and I don't care. Um, So what was funny um, was I got a piece of hair in my mouth too. Oh my God, hair. Anyway, what I was saying is that the environment can trigger the old thinking and that thinking, if you can put somebody in a space where they can get solid on their feet in an environment that is supportive to sober people, they could start putting their life back together. It's a safe zone. And what it also will do for the family is give them that time. Because a lot of times what has happened in the getting to treatment scenario is we've, you know, I did this you put a bullseye on your back, you became the cop, you became the bad guy. And now they're going to come back and there's not, that is not usually all resolved by somebody going away to treatment. You're going, Oh, I'm so relieved. They're safe. And I'm so angry for what we've been through. And Oh my God, we're spending all this money. And why can't he just stop or whatever? Mm -hmm. All that needs to be cleaned up over here. And all of the new thinking and support needs to happen here. If you want to heal the family. Right. And if it's a child and you're going to take that person and put them right back in the school situation where they were doing what they were doing, that's dangerous. So one of my favorite there's, I have two new areas of recovery resources that I am in love with. And one of them is sober high schools. I'm a huge Mm -hmm. fan of sober high schools. We have one out here. Oh, I, I am a big fan. And the second one is recovery coaching. Um, recovery coaching is another resource that can help somebody get through those early days and get super well-grounded in their, um, or for somebody who relapsed, who's got a relapse pattern going on. So those are some of the resources in addition to detox, whatever form of blueprint treatment you're moving through sober living. And then too, also the other piece of sober living that's so important is I read a statistic about not having a place to live is one of the biggest barriers to staying sober. And a lot of people go through all their financial resources and become completely disabled in terms of creating income before they can. So they're in this catch 22. So I think sober living places if they're government funded or private care or private pay or insurance or whatever, I know the County I live in has funds for that for people who don't have the funds. So 
there are resources. I, I think what I wanted to come away from this conversation with is your take on how to get people to resources and those barriers to recovery. So. Yeah, is that helpful? I mean. Very helpful. Very helpful. Is there anything else that you didn't say and I didn't say that you would like to be part of this conversation that you would like? No, well, to I will say that there, you know, there are also um, like charity. So for, so I was recently um, selected as a prefer, preferred provider of intervention for the Hall of Fame behavioral health network oh, wow. and a lot of people yeah it's a huge compliment and very, very the behavioral nice. uh the hall of fame behavioral health people would think maybe that that's just for athletes which of course that was the founding concept but now is for athletes veterans and anyone the like right so and the, the concept was to create a safe uh environment for athletes current and and retired from the NFL, particularly, that need help and guidance, transition care, you know, they're, um, they also have barriers to seeking help yes. uh, for addiction, mental health, anger, I mean, we see that all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that was the the concept behind it, but it's now expanded. And one thing under the umbrella of the Hall of Fame behavioral health is something called the Heart Foundation, and that's spelled H A R T. I can send you the link. Yes, please, do. Elizabeth, if you want to. Put it. And the Heart Foundation uh, raises money and provides money to individuals families and individuals, athletes, veterans, and anybody who needs fight like to fill the financial gap between where they are to detox, treatment, aftercare, psychology, right? Th therapy, yes. Yes. Uh, medication management, and even sober living. And mm -hmm. so they provide the opportunity for families to uh, apply for funding for all of, you know, any treatment that you might need, oh, that's which is, one. it's amazing. Yeah, that's it's really amazing. Cool. So I did not uh, know about that. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. Yeah, that's you're welcome. Awesome. Yeah, I uh, frankly didn't either. <laughs> uh, <laughs> until recently. So um, yeah, my business partner and in intervention who's in Texas, we should have her on sometime, by the way. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, we could have, yeah, a third little box here. Um, she does a lot of fundraising for the Heart Foundation. So That's she knows it super intimately. Yeah, it's, it's really yeah. cool. There's some um, great organizations. In fact, one that I'm very involved in fundraising for and serve on the board of directors for is Faces and Voices of Recovery, which addresses something that you mentioned. Yeah, we will definitely follow up with her, by the way. Yes. That's a big yes. Yeah. Um, but the faces and voices, what they address is something that I heard in what you just said, which is sometimes these people who've had public careers as, as athletes, sometimes very damaged brains that leads to, we know from the, the research, I read research a lot. We know that that can lead to addiction issues, anger issues, mm -hmm. um, self, uh, terrible depression, depression, self-regulation. Right. And that doesn't just happen on the professional level that can happen from high school. <laughs> okay. Or, you know. So, but there's also another barrier to, uh, to, re uh, reaching out for resources to, for recovery. And that is being a person known in the world for something. That's right. 
And then, oh my gosh, my ego won't allow me to show up and ask for help. Faces and Voices is an organization that uh, one of the things that they do is they really advocate for education around um, understanding and helping people who don't really have a full understanding, which is a lot of people, that's why we're doing this podcast, is about the the stigma that's attached to addiction and the, the blame and shame game that goes on. It's like nobody wants to associate with the behavioral part of what's going on there. So we, as a society, I believe uh, stigma is just another way of saying a societal shame. And we off shame it over here. It's like, oh, that's them. Mm-hmm. And we may be doing this very unconsciously, but as a society, I would say that's still intact, that thinking. Faces and Voices um, works um, to educate so that we can diminish that because that's a barrier to getting help. If you feel like, oh my God, I already feel terrible about myself because of this problem. And if I come out, it's going to be on the news tonight. It's like coming out. It's like this secret. I got to keep it a secret. That is a huge barrier. Mm-hmm. And it may not, uh, it may not be mm-hmm. like a movie star, but you may have enough people who know who you are that it would keep you from mm-hmm. wanting to ask for help. Yeah, I've done a lot of interventions for celebrities, of course. They have their own barriers. Yeah. I mean, right? It's really hard, let's say. That for, can be true for CEOs and- Right, so I was just gonna say, right? that's exactly people. right. So, you know, like a celebrity, right? Carries on their back, right? Celebrities are, you know, singers and, you know, are small industries, right? Yeah. So behind one person on stage, you have hundreds of people that are employed because of that person. Exactly. So there's a lot when somebody goes to treatment. I also specialize in like executive intervention. So although they're not famous, right? When you're when you sit on an executive board mm-hmm. of a Fortune 500 company yes. that's traded on Nasdaq for you to go to treatment, I mean, we watch stock prices drop. Yes. Because right. somebody is acknowledging an addiction issue. So there are barriers for high profile, high wealth, and high, um, I don't know if power is the right word, well, influence. Yeah. High in influence business. people. Yeah. Absolutely true. And, so. And, so, and and Music Cares is another organization. That's right. Good I one. love yeah. Music Cares. I'm a, Gram- I'm a Grammy. I love the Grammys. I'm, I've been a member. I've been involved with the Grammys for, I don't know. I don't know years. And that's another organization that if you're in the music industry, they definitely have addiction services. They, they address it. They write, you know, and a lot of creative people, like you said, the more successful you are in the creative arts, the more the industry builds up around you and you're the principal of that. So if you go down, your manager's not getting paid, your agent's not getting paid, your brand is damaged. So how many bookings you can get. So if you're not a recovered person, now it's okay to be a recovered You can get out there and talk about your recovery story. But what if you're in that place where you have an image of one thing, but you really have this going on, there's that disconnect and that has to get integrated to get healed. So these are all some of the things that I've seen through the years. And it's because I am in the music industry that I have seen that that part of it and people will hate on somebody who's really hurting. Um, And that that I want to bring compassion. I want to bring compassion to that conversation because 
they're a really sensitive human being in there that's just wanted to be an artist because that's what their soul is. And they were successful enough for a business to grow up around them and for them to be, they have to be well known to be successful. And now that's the very thing that can keep them isolated mm-hmm. and stuck. Mm-hmm. And we want, that's we don't, shame. that's not, that's just not kind. It's not compassion. And it's based on a lack of thoughtfulness. So faces and voices, the heart, is it the heart foundation or the heart? Yes. The heart foundation and and faces and voices also does a lot with community uh, peer recovery groups and peer support. So that's a great organization, heart foundation. Um, Betty Ford can give direction. Even if you can't afford to go to Betty Ford, they can give that. It's a, it's a nonprofit organization that Mm -hmm. would give you a, a ton of information and, um, uh, Music cares. All really great. Great. Excellent. Um, I know we have to close soon, but something I wanted to talk about next week, I guess. So what I'm seeing out here in my field, out here on the ground, front lines of addiction, suffering individuals with intervention, of course, and then long-term, like I said, having sober livings. And I have clients with me for like a year, right? Something that I see, and I think it's a useful conversation during the holidays, something that I see that's growing so, so popular are non-alcoholic spirits. So Mm. like brandies and whiskeys and vodkas you know that are non-alcoholic so non-alcoholic spirits non-alcoholic wine non-alcoholic champagne too but also i'd love to touch on the concept of sober and green right or as demi lovato called it sober cal like california sober which is being abstinence from all mind and mood all trans substances except for marijuana and then also cbd and thc product Um, I I think it's a really useful conversation about what that means for people in recovery is, does that make sense? Does it not make sense? What's sober? What is it? What does abstinence mean to you? I think that's a great question. We take it for granted, right? We take it for granted old school AA, which is where you and I found our recovery. There weren't other options, but I think it's a valuable question to ask, like what does abstinence mean to you and what does sobriety mean to you? So I think it's, um, I think it's useful. And I, it's a question that escaped me to ask for a long time because I just assumed wrongfully so that's right that that's right that abstinence was abstinence well in this day and age abstinence is not our form of abstinence so what's your my concept yeah because my concept I'm pretty sure is the same you have um I shouldn't assume that but I I think we're on the same page with that for me all of the above is a no all that's a no for me that's how I roll I will do a non-alcoholic drink at a place where people are drinking. Of course, I, you know, I have no problem with alcohol. I just know that I can't see alcohol. So when you say a non-alcoholic drink, do yeah. you mean like a non-alcoholic beer or like, no, a- no, I don't do anything that simulates the behavior. Right. I will do a, uh, like if I'm at a cocktail party, it's usually, I'll usually do something like a, um, uh, soda with a lime in it. I won't, 
And I don't need to bring that up or that nobody, I mean, of course, yeah. nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. And it's yeah, funny I in the mind I of the alcoholic. Even do, like, yeah. And I don't even do, I don't do the non-alcoholic. I would, I was, wine was definitely a trigger drug for me and I don't do wine. I don't do the non-alcoholic. I'm not saying you can't or shouldn't. I'm saying you should figure that out for you. Mm-hmm. I personally think that there's a little bit of alcohol in those. That's what I've read. And maybe I'm outdated. I don't know, but I don't even, I skip the menu. If it says there was alcohol used in the preparation of the food, even if it was burned off, that's how, that's how, that's how I am for me. That's my abstinence level. I don't, I, yeah, I am. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's a valuable conversation. I do too. Especially with the holidays coming, because I see it more and more popular with my clients and lots of questions about it. And And especially with the non-alcoholic spirits, they're like the latest and greatest thing. And and I don't know very much about that. Yeah, I don't know much about it. I want to hear. Yeah, let's I'm going to do a little deep dive on that. Let's have that conversation. I I, uh, I think it's useful. I do too. Um, and I didn't know about it either. Um, but I think, yeah, like I said, I think it's useful. I was going to say, I'm going to do a little homework on that. Cause I would be talking about something I know nothing about. So I'll do that. And then let's have that conversation. CBD that, that I think there's medicinal purposes for that. And I can, I've read up enough to know that I don't think that's mind altering. My, my line is, is it mind altering? Now I drink a lot of caffeine. <laughs> That's definitely mind altering. So I don't know. Is that hypocritical? So yeah, let's have that conversation and and, and see. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll just, yeah. And I'll offer you this and remind me next week to say this because I think it's super important. You just made a great statement, which was, is it mind altering? You know, I guess my thought on that is I think a better way to say that is that, you know, is it biochemically altering. So I'm kind of thinking this mm. out loud because I don't know, is it mind altering, right? For an alcoholic to drink an non-alcoholic wine. I understand what you're saying, right? That it might not have alcohol in it. Let's say it does or doesn't, who knows, right? Might be the but in the mind, yeah, it, right. Right. And behavior changes mood and thought. Yeah. Right. So is it mind altering? I would venture to say yes. Right. It'd be like me. I don't know. Like I wouldn't snort sugar. Right. Exactly. And here's a really good point about that. That is an excellent point because coffee, I love my coffee. You know, I love my coffee. We named this coffee, coffee with Christina because I love, I love coffee and it's a mind altering biochemical agent in it, but it doesn't destroy my life. And I've never had a problem with it. But if I start imitating a pattern of behavior, of drinking a mocktini or whatever, mm-hmm. or a, a, a non-alcoholic glass of wine, that's imitating a behavior. And this is a behavioral health issue. If I'm imitating the behavior, am I triggering the chemistry in my brain? That that's says, right. You're cool now. Let's go for it. And that's a really excellent conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's yeah. what I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I've had men and women in my office who have relapsed, I would venture to say, and again, 
super useful conversation to have next week because I'm not making a point. I'm not taking a stance one way or the other. I'll save that for next week to say, but <laughs> I've watched relapse occur with men and women in long-term sobriety mm-hmm. who start with this and end in relapse. And what they would tell you is that it, the romance of it, the reminder yes. of it, the invite, there's such a thing as environmental triggers, all of that, right? Like hearing the ice clink in a glass, right? Is incredibly triggering for some. Mm-hmm. And then you add this non-alcoholic whiskey on it. I just think, I don't know. I think behavior is mind changing to be frank. So I don't know if it, I'm not even sure if it matters if there's alcohol in it or not, because the behavior in and of itself is enough to produce. Yeah. Right. And by the way, I'll say also like, uh, I, I, and I understand the, I don't know if it's truly alcoholic free. I, I don't know. What I do know is something like kombucha. They have kombucha with 5% alcohol in it you have to use Mm. an id to buy it and kombucha is hugely popular popular in the recovering community so it's just i don't know it's just interesting right and i would i think non-alcoholic product has less alcohol than the kombucha Mm. i get my sober living we're not allowed to have or there's no kombucha on site right and when i tasted kombucha not the alcohol one but just the regular one it tasted so much like beer it just tasted so much like beer yeah me out so i don't know i think we should talk about it i think it's a good conversation i think it's a really good conversation and i am completely open-minded and know that I don't know a whole lot about it. So I'm going to do a little deep dive. I'm going to take a look at my own behaviors. Uh, Like a soda with lime is a lot like a gin and tonic, right? So, you know, I get it. It's like, there's this, there's this dance that we have to do, but that's a great conversation we'll have for next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. I just really value our time together. And I hope that this brings information to people who are looking for, I hope, I hope you're finding what you're looking for here. So thank you. Love you, sister. And we talk next week. I'll see you next week. All right. Take care. Take care, Sue. Bye. Bye.